You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Monster House presents... Monster Talk can be supported by listeners like you at patreon.com forward slash monster talk or by leaving positive reviews on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Learn more at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us in this way. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or exceed your expectations. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a source of many useful facts. For example, here's what it has to say about space. Space, it says, is big, really big. You just won't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. I mean, you may think it's a long way down the road to the chemists, but that's just peanuts to space. In the next two episodes of Monster Talk, we're going to be looking at a big topic. It's not the huge topic of space. It's not the question of whether there's intelligent life out there. It's not even the question of whether we're being visited by aliens. All of those are interesting questions, but if you step back one layer, you can also look at the way that human beings are interacting with these questions. And if you follow that from about 1940 to now, some very peculiar things are going on. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. As I said before the intro, there's been some really strange things going on lately in the world of UFO research and in science. On the one hand, new methods of measuring and observing space have expanded our understanding of our place in a massive and expanding universe. We know about many more planets and solar systems and galaxies now. On the other hand, researchers continue to see strange and peculiar things in our own skies right here on Earth. While people look for natural explanations, others ask the question of whether these strange observations mean that we're experiencing advanced technology from other species, 
or perhaps from the future, or perhaps from some infernal dimension. Obviously, these are wildly divergent possibilities, and they ignore the depressing but important reality that people are terribly flawed observers and have a massive history of misunderstanding or misperceiving such things. And on the third hand, for all you Twilight Zone Martians out there, we've got exciting new mysteries about the ideas of dark matter, dark energy, and questions about the framework of physics itself. Science is a methodology of testing the questions and ideas that push towards the most correct and accurate models possible, but because it's being performed by humans, it's always going to be a rough road to walk. And it is a road, not a destination. Everything science creates is necessarily provisional and subservient to new evidence and facts. And the more science discovers about the nuances of the universe, the more difficult it becomes for laymen and amateur researchers to fully understand and keep up. Even if the knowledge accumulated in various fields are published and freely available, expertise and understanding require tremendous labor and effort. So it's the easiest thing in the world to sit outside that ecosystem and to call it an ivory tower of academia or an orthodoxy of science or a closed-minded framework. Maybe a better metaphor would be that the people doing science are playing a game with very specific rules and extremely expensive game pieces. It's a game many of us would like to play, but if we make up our own rules, we're not really playing the same game, are we? We've talked before about the contentious relationship between the world of cryptozoology and academia. Brian Regal's book, Searching for Sasquatch, is an excellent resource for how the amateur scientists doing cryptozoology simultaneously mock the academic world, yet desperately wanted validation from it. Very similar relationships exist in the world of ufology. And many in the UFO world believe that the government has been secretly hiding a long-standing relationship with the pilots of unidentified flying objects. Don't make the mistake of lumping all the UFO people together. They're a highly diverse group with a broad spectrum of beliefs. But among those beliefs is the idea that the government is preparing to admit to a relationship with aliens, or at least its deeper understanding of the UFO phenomena. And that idea is called disclosure. On December 16th, 2017, the world was suddenly jolted into awareness of what that might feel like when the New York Times ran a UFO story on the front page. This was not some kooky human interest story or a blurry tabloid newspaper photo. This was a story that tied together the Pentagon, UFO research, dark budget money, and a mysterious program to look for UFOs and possibly even research crash materials. It's a heck of a story, but the story behind that story is even more interesting and raises the questions of just what exactly was going on in that government department? Who was benefiting from that dark budget money? And what does all this have to do with the band Blink-182? It wasn't disclosure of the kind that UFO believers await like some second coming of Jesus, but it was a kind of disclosure. It was a disclosure that in a government bureaucracy as vast as the United States has, it's very possible to hide and support a panoply of fringe investigations. I can't do the story justice here. It's too big. But you know who can? Our guest for this episode, author Sarah Scholes, who's turned this convoluted but fascinating story into an extremely well-written and understandable examination titled, They Are Already Here, UFO Culture and Why We See Saucers. We discussed several strange acronyms in this interview, so I'm going to put a little glossary in the show notes. If you get confused, just have a look there and hopefully I've got the info you need to get reoriented. So we'll be discussing a lot of ideas about UFOs that parallel cryptozoology themes, but don't worry, 
we'll also have some monster talk. So Sarah Scholes is a science journalist whose work has been featured in Wired and Popular Science and the New York Times. She's been a public science communicator and has most recently written the book that we're going to be talking about today, which is They Are Already Here, UFO Culture, and Why We See Saucers. So welcome, Sarah Scholes. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to the show. Yeah, we're very excited to have you. Your book sort of begins with a discussion of the AATIP, the AATIP story that, that appeared in the New York Times. And at first I thought, the way you wrote it, I thought, oh... Was that when you got introduced to UFOs? Because, my God, you go deep on this stuff. But it's obvious after reading the whole book, that wasn't really what triggered your interest in this topic. You must have been following it for a while. So can you tell us a little bit about how you actually personally became interested in UFOs and, and decided to look into this? Yeah, so so I've been interested not necessarily in the topic of UFOs, but in the question of aliens and whether they're you know somewhere out there. Since I was a tiny child, uh, I grew up close to Kennedy Space Center, so space was always kind of part of my life. But I actually did venture into UFOs just uh, when ATIP came into the news. That was my first introduction i read the big new york times story about this pentagon ufo research program like a lot of other people did and i uh yeah i was just fascinated that there was this uh kind of fringe topic that had such an uh official investigation into it and it really just went from there and could i just uh, get some clarification on who atipr is or or what that stands for ATIP stands for the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, and it is, uh, uh, well, I mean, I guess the key thing about it is we don't know exactly what it is. Some people say it was a UFO investigation program. Some say it was just an advanced aerospace weapons uh, research program. But regardless, it was run by the, the Pentagon in the U.S. Um, for a few years from uh, about uh, starting it starting in 2000. Seven and um, but that's that's kind of that's kind of all we know at the moment and so it's we call it the Pentagon's UFO program but uh, we don't really know what it was exactly. Okay, and so what led you to write this book in particular? So I read about this this Pentagon program and I I had never really thought very much about UFOs before because I was kind of always on the the SETI side the search for extraterrestrial intelligence side which is kind of looking for you know radio broadcasts usually from far away alien civilizations and thought of UFOs as kind of outside of my purview but um yeah this the story got me interested and I um I began by writing an article for Wired magazine just kind of following up about what the program was or wasn't. And just in the course of doing that, I talked to you know UFO historians and people who had been researching UFOs for decades. And they were super interesting people, which is probably not news to anyone listening to this podcast, but very interesting, uh, very smart, very dedicated. And I was like, what is it that compels people to spend um, so much of their time, usually outside of work and outside of family, you know, on this thing that um, is a mystery and might not be real in the way we think of it as real. Um, and yeah, just wanted to get into people's motivations there. Our, the purview of our show, our, our, our sort of, what do you call it, bailiwick, is around monsters. But we've expanded that to include all kinds of sort of fringe topics. If people have been listening to the show for a while, they know Karen and I are interested in UFOs and ghosts and all kinds of sort of peripheral weirdness besides just monsters. But 
It was so peculiar to me to see the New York Times publish a UFO story on the front page. Can, can we talk mm-hmm. a little bit about why that's unusual and, and what the sort of implications are of that? To me, it's unusual because uh, the when when the press, which I guess I could say because I'm part of the press, the press and the media usually cover UFOs in a little bit of a a mocking way or uh, taking them just as, as a fringe topic, a conspiracy theory, um, and not talking about them in terms of official programs or anything other than anecdotes. And so to not only see that it was in the New York Times at all, but that it was on the front page of the printed paper, which it was, and that it was about an official program when uh, the U.S. said that it had not been studying UFOs at all for decades, I think a lot of those things kind of took people aback a little bit. Oh, how did the original story of the Navy UFO videos come to exist? And where did the videos really come from? Um, I don't think we have the exact story of how the Navy UFO videos became public, but the, the way that most people encountered them was through this New York Times story that came out in December 2017, the first two, and then a little bit later, the third one um, came out. And in, in that official story, it said that these videos were, were things that had been released by the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. Um, and actually, what kind of led me down the rabbit hole of this whole thing was I talked to someone at the Pentagon, uh, a spokesperson at the Pentagon, who said that wasn't the case. The Pentagon hadn't released the videos at all. Um, and I didn't know what that meant, if they were playing games with the word release, um, like government officials sometimes do. Um, but but it seems now, we now have confirmation a few years later that these are official military videos from Navy pilots who saw things that the, um, the Defense Department classifies as unidentified aerial phenomena. And um, they, uh, it's a complicated story. They, the person who says he was director of this program, who might not have been director of this program, applied to get them released to official U.S. government partners and not for public release. Um, and so they were never authorized for public release, but they made it out into the public anyway. And then finally, years later, just earlier this year, the Pentagon finally said, okay, we officially released these videos and they came from our jets and they show unidentified aerial phenomena. Okay. When I saw the story, you know, like like I get very excited about this sort of thing, and not in the sense of I'm expecting disclosure or whatever, but I'm always interested in how the U.S. government positions itself around these sort of fringy topics. But I'm also interested in journalism and how journalism covers weird topics, because when it comes to fringe things, we've we've been pretty critical of the press because it seems like it's always oh isn't that weird play the x-files mm-hmm. music that kind of thing you know and it's like for some people this is extremely important and for some people uh this is not important at all but but the scene mm-hmm. on the front page of the new york times gives it sort of credentials that maybe i i suspect it doesn't really deserve and these articles th- this particular article has three bylines it's by helene cooper ralph blumenthal and leslie Keane. And I don't know much about Cooper, but I believe Cooper is a Pentagon uh, correspondent or, or, or studies that. And then Ralph Blumenthal and Leslie Keene, 
I don't think are disinterested parties. I mean, Leslie Keene in particular um, has written um, about UFOs in, um, and now is writing about life after death and these sort of uh, topics. Again, I think they're interesting topics, but I wouldn't call them scientific topics, and they're certainly fringy. Um, mm-hmm. I, they don't seem like disinterested parties. Do, you, do you, Have you any thoughts about how this came to be? Like, literally, I mean, how did... What feels like a press release for To the Stars Academy. How did this become an article on the front page of the New York Times? So To the Stars Academy did have its own kind of press release a few months before the New York Times story came out saying in in a, in a less official way um, that, that this program existed and did study UFOs and they were going to continue it. And then it was a few months later that um, this New York Times story came out, and it it is very suspicious that this article came out on the same day that To the Stars created its website, and it also put on the website the same three videos that were in the New York Times story. So I think it's it's pretty clear that there was some coordination here, which is not necessarily nefarious. Journalists hear about stories because of press releases all the time, and companies often position their own coverage to be in parallel with what journalists are writing. So that's not necessarily nefarious, but it is true. I know I know less about uh, the things Ralph Blumenthal has covered and, and Helene Cooper is, is, or at least was when she wrote this, the Pentagon correspondent at the New York Times. Uh, but Leslie Kane has written about UFOs for a long time, including some dubious coverage, like there, there's one story of a UFO in Chile that was a just a bug on a camera, people determined, and she has kind of stuck to the story of it being a UFO for a long time. Um, she's on the board of a UFO uh, investigation organization, and... Um, you know, everybody's interested in what they're interested in, but usually if you're going to be writing a journalistic story, you're supposed to be able to take a little bit of a step back from the topic and not have, you know, public opinions expressed that might affect the way you go into what you're investigating. Mm -hmm. So uh, what do we know about the the ATIP office in the the Pentagon at this point? Um, We know that it ran... The program ran from around uh, 2007 to around 2012. Um, We know that it was at least to some degree interested in learning about advanced aerospace technology, kind of what might be happening 40 years from now that might be a big advance from what what we have. Um, It seems like that was to anticipate like things that foreign countries might have that might be threatening to the United States and and all the documentation we've seen that has come from the Pentagon, nothing about it mentions um, unidentified objects. And I think the last stance the Pentagon had was that it didn't study unidentified objects at all. Um, We do know that there were 38 technical reports um, that came out of it that kind of, they're pretty pretty wacky science. You know, there's there's some stuff about the the Drake equation, which is not that wacky, trying to calculate how many uh, intelligent civilizations might be in the galaxy, but there's stuff about traversable wormholes and anti-gravity and just kind of exotic propulsion and alien uh, occasionally things that they studied. But so far, those things, which are really just scientific papers, um, some of them even based on papers that were already in the public domain, are 
are all we know that the government got for its uh, $22 million. Very interesting. <laughs> it is. It's it's all, it's such a strange mix. Um, and, and then, of course, I think the sort of, I don't know how to put it, is wacky thing is like how Tom DeLonge, a lead singer of a band, Blink-182, becomes some sort of spokesperson for, I don't know what to call it. This to the stars Academy can, it's all so weird. It's like this weird mix of government and conspiracy theory. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's just crazy. Can you talk a little bit about Tom DeLonge and his relationship to all this? Because it is really interesting. And by the way, let me just say, I know we're asking you to talk about it. Listeners, please pick up this book and read it. It is amazing at how much it covers. So, even if she tells us a whole bunch here, there's more in the book. There's more. <laughs> and it's so convoluted. I'm sure I said it better in writing than I do trying to lay out the timeline here. Um, but so Tom DeLong, uh, famous or infamous punk rocker from the bland band Blink-182, um, I couldn't really find exactly when he first got into UFOs, but it goes back at least until the 90s. And he just kind of started reading UFO, it seems like mostly conspiracy books while while the band was touring around, just kind of got really into the topic in general, started a, a, a paranormal and uh, UFO news site. Um, uh, and then eventually... Um, started talking about how he had grand information that he wanted to give us all about UFOs and then announced that he was starting this thing called To the Stars Academy of Arts and Science. And that was in October 2017. And he said that they were going to be working on kind of reverse engineering what seemed to be a UFO and that um, he needed the public's help getting money and that he had amassed this team of intelligence officials, former Department of Defense officials, um, aerospace government contractors, and I think he just, he called them people in the know, um, to work on this problem. Um, And a lot of people were really excited by that. Um, I was not not excited by it. Um, I didn't necessarily think that it was true, but I was uh, willing to be excited if it was. Um, But so far, what they have mostly done is have some hand in getting these three Navy videos released and then um, work on books and movies and music and t-shirts. They seem so far to have mostly been an (laughs) entertainment company. His kind of stance is that he wants to get the truth of UFOs out there in a non-scary way by putting it in fictional form, introducing us all to it gradually, and then giving the bombshell truth. But I don't think we know what the bombshell truth is or is not yet. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's... I'm I'm reading some of his... He's got a series of books called Secret Machines, and there's like a straight-up fiction version, and then like a nonfiction version. It's really weird. It's a weird series of books, and I've started reading it, and it reminded me so much of uh, Robert Anton Wilson's Illuminatus trilogy that I decided to stop reading it and go read that instead and then go back and read it because it's like it's (laughs) crazy how much overlap there is in the material. And he and he partnered up with uh, Peter Lavenda to write the nonfiction version, if it is nonfiction, and so that's like hooking up with America's leading mystical figure. He's a, he's a <laughs> sort of a magician, occult master, publisher, writer character. It's, it's wow, it's quite a mix. 
I don't know what Tom DeLonge's in game is either, but I'm sure there will be a merch table no matter what it is. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to raise another uh, interesting character. So um, Louis or Louis Elizondo, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Um, but did he really work as a UFO researcher for the Pentagon? And what do we know about his job duties compared to his personal statements? Yeah, so his personal statements uh, are that he was the director of ATIP um, mm -hmm. and that I think that there was a quote somewhere along the way that went something like uh, in the UFO world, you know, all roads led to Rome and Rome was my desk, implying that, you know, he was the keeper of the, the UFO secrets for this program. Um, and all, the whole time I've been working on this, I had been for years trying to confirm that with the Pentagon, and they would only ever tell me that he worked for the Department of Defense, and they would never confirm that he actually worked for this program. And then another journalist whose name is Keith Clore um, did get them to say something, and what they said was um, that uh, Elizondo did not have any responsibilities related to ATIP during his time um, with the Department of Defense. So their current stance is that he not only was not the director, but didn't work for it at all. Um, you know, they could be lying, he could be lying. We just don't know right now. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. It's so weird. It's so weird. <laughs> It is a really strange. <laughs> is, uh, so I want to talk about Robert Bigelow a little bit. So it is, I'm just like wondering, is is Robert Bigelow the puppet master of American weirdness at this point? I, I was reading this, your book, and I saw this quote um, 
about, according to a 1999 Wall Street Journal article, Bigelow invested $10 million in UFO studies in the 90s. He had sponsored a new radio show called Area 2000 about paranormal topics. Broadcaster Art Bell helmed on the main microphone. The segments often streamed from a slick Las Vegas reporter named George Knapp. So you're basically describing the early beginnings of what becomes Coast to Coast AM. And even now, even after the passing of Art Bell, Coast to Coast AM is still sort of a uh, uh, America's main pipeline to a lot of this, this sort of weird stuff. I mean, I know we have a lot more streaming you know, conspiracy shows now, but, but still, if you want to know about UFOs or alternative medicine or psychics or whatever kind of weird topic you're into, Coast to Coast is still a place to go. And Bigelow owned the uh, Skinwalker Ranch and Bigelow was apparently tied in with Bob Lazar. So wh- what is the deal with Robert Bigelow and how much influence is he having on all this stuff? Robert Bigelow kind of amassed a fortune mostly by building a chain of budget hotels and just kind of being a real estate mogul and then using that money he was able to kind of channel it into his true passion which appears to be ufos and paranormal topics and um throughout the 90s and in the early 2000s after he bought skinwalker ranch and started a place called the national institute for discovery science where he tried to scientifically investigate um paranormal things a little bit of life after death a little bit of um beings from maybe other dimensions some ufos um but with the idea of kind of gathering scientific evidence using instruments and credentialed researchers um yeah he was he was kind of trying to to gain a foothold and gain some rigor in this topic that typically hadn't had that much and um you know, what's hard about it is that he, in general, hasn't really released much of what he found, and uh, signs point to the fact that he didn't find very much, and so didn't find very much that he wanted to tell the rest of us about. But he um, he also um, spent a lot of time trying to gather lots of UFO reports. At one point, he um, had direct access to a lot of the sightings from the mutual UFO network MUFON, um, had his own team of investigators for them. And then, um, also tried to get case reports from places like Canada. And so it's, he's, he's kind of this figure in the background. He's quiet. He says he doesn't use email. He doesn't give a lot of interviews, but at the same time, he's probably the largest private funder of this type of research kind of, I guess I was going to say pulling the strings. So I guess we will say puppet master maybe. <laughs> Keeping the lights on anyway, right? So yeah. I also wanted to ask about the uh, the rebranding of UFO to UAP, so unidentified aerial phenomenon, um, and, and that the Navy is pushing this. So what's this about? Can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, they haven't really talked about why they have made that change, but um, that is something that I feel okay speculating about, although I try not to speculate about too many things. Um, I think, you know, UFO has so much cultural baggage. Um, it, It technically just means unidentified flying object, but in practical cultural terms, it definitely has an alien association. And if you want to be doing serious military work, and if you don't want people to think you're going in with an, you know, an agenda or a foregone conclusion, you might want to take a little bit of that cultural association away by giving it a much more serious name that no movies have been made about yet. And so I think that is probably what's going on. There's a lot of 
weird connections here, but like when I think about like the Leslie Keen thing, you know, I guess Ralph Blumenthal and Leslie Keen came out with a follow up story in July of this year, I think, where they were talking about, you know, does the New York Times believe in UFOs? Do the authors of this story believe in UFOs? And they're like, no, we don't believe in UFOs. But then what we're saying is we don't believe in aliens. But I mean, what does UFO mean? There's so many different sort of interpretations. And like, clearly, mm-hmm. the skeptical point of view is it stands for unidentified flying object. And yeah, mm-hmm. who who doesn't object to that? Except that there's all this sort it's of connotations of there, exactly. Flying there's all this, this this sort of word baggage, right, associated yeah. with it, where people some people clearly mean aliens from another planet, and then mm-hmm. you know that that implies the extraterrestrial hypothesis, which again that subdivides into people who think no, 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 we believe there's things flying, but we don't initially think they come from other planets. Maybe they're from other dimensions. There's so. I thought that whole argument seemed really disingenuous considering the sort of the background of the people involved. I, it, it seems like there's so much meaning behind UFOs. So maybe UAP is a good idea, but even so, I think they're already being hijacked as well. I think, I think there's people who want to believe there's more to the world than what we know. And that some of that involves intelligence is either from outside or from within. I, and I certainly know DeLong's, into all of these sort of, um, oh, you know, ultra terrestrials, other dimensions. Like, it's all a possibility. I mean, it seems like a mm-hmm. smorgasbord of anything except skepticism. Am I, <laughs> am I misreading that? <laughs> I, uh, I think that's a fair characterization. And I think also what's interesting about a lot of the people associated with kind of the initial coverage and with To the Stars is that if you say anything about aliens or or but mostly aliens, then they will say, that's not what we're talking about. We're only talking about the unidentified flying object with no connotations. But then in the next interview next week, they will be talking about how it couldn't possibly be anything else. And so I do think there's a little bit of disingenuous stuff going on where at the, at, on the one hand, you want to be taken seriously because you're going in agnostically. And on the other hand, you really, really like aliens and want to believe that's what's going on. So I'm curious about uh, some of the people that you interviewed for the book as well. Um, did you speak with experts, scientists, or lay people, or was it a, a range of different kinds of interviewees? Yeah, kind of a mix. I uh, at a, On the scholarly side of things, I talked to a few historians who study UFOs and kind of how our cultural leanings about them and our thinking about them has evolved over time. Um, I talked with anthropologists and and religious studies scholars who kind of look at them from the human and spiritual angles. Uh, I talked to uh, lay people at UFO conferences or at UFO kind of tourist attractions um, and at my local MUFON meetings where I hung out quite a bit. Um, And then I talked to also kind of veteran uh, hardened UFO researchers, mostly on the more skeptical kind of meta UFO side who um, are inside the community, but are able to look at it kind of with a, a bird's eye view about what's going on and have been there for the cycles that we've seen throughout history of interest and disinterest and disinformation and, and kind of uh, shine a light on all of that. So all over the place. Um, I don't remember if you covered this in the book or not, but um, Diana Pasolka, 
wrote a book called American Cosmic, and it was about UFO culture, and she sort of described it as the basis of a new religion. Um, I personally felt that that was kind of old news, like that that UFOs have always been tied into religious concepts. I mean, seriously, like it, basically right after the first flying saucers were spotted, uh, you start getting UFO religions popping up um, in the sort of the contactee movement. Um, but disregarding that, did you see any signs in your work about this sort of um, an emergence of a secular UFO-based religion? Did you did you think there's something to that idea? Um, I mean, I think I agree with you that I don't really see it as something new, kind of the the same old cycle or the same things going on. Um, and I guess I was more interested not so much in the UFO cults, but in or in necessarily like a unified new age religion, but just the idea that maybe for some people, UFOs, um, especially with the extraterrestrial hypothesis, kind of fill the hole that religion fills for other people because um, an, an alien is a lot like a god in that it's, uh, it's kind of a more advanced, better version of us with better technology. And um, it, it shows us that, you know, there's something more out there than we have on Earth. It explains a little bit about how we might have gotten here and that, you know, life would have had to have emerged at least twice. And so I think all of those questions are questions that religion also addresses. And so more than seeing it as like a new religious movement, I see it as kind of the, the religious part of the brain, maybe it appeals to, or at least spiritual, not, maybe not religious. Um, and then I think, and I don't think it's that for everybody, but um, for the people who think about it that way, I think also kind of evaluate UFO claims that way. Like if, if there's a, a UFO um, sighting that fits with what they think about UFOs, they're just kind of like, oh, well, of course that happened, or of course that person was abducted that way, and just kind of believe it in the, the way that you might believe a spiritual or religious claim. And this just makes me think of an article I wrote maybe about 10 years ago. It was about a group called uh, Share International. So I'm not sure if you include them in your book at all, but it was. No, I'm not familiar time. with them. Okay. It was led at the time by a fellow named Benjamin Krim. And I believe he's passed a couple of years ago, but it was an interesting blend of UFO beliefs. And they would talk about space brothers and space sisters. Um, and at the same time, talk about, a um, Christ-like figure called Maitreya. So I'm not sure if this is familiar to you, Blake. Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with the Maitreya stuff, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was, uh, yeah, like th this Christ-like figure that was going to be turning up to, uh, to Earth. To Any, anytime that people are, like, have a religion where they're, they're projecting there might be a Christ-like figure that's going to show up, I always think, is it me? Am I? Is it me? <laughs> <laughs> well, there were lots of sightings of Maitreya over the years, and I think it was all just kind of drummed up by this organization to get excitement. But, um, yeah, I think that they're an interesting kind of UFO religion that's been around for maybe 20 years or even more, I think. Okay. They're a strange well, bunch. Oh, yeah, I, didn't they, yeah. like, they, they, they thought that they had, like, found their Christ-like figure and he didn't want to be the Messiah? Is that is that the right group? I think that, that happened. That sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, think that, I think that's not just a Monty Python thing. I think that really happened. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds like that group also, who I'll have to look up, kind of fulfills another important part of 
UFO stuff, which is community, whether that's a, a fully formed cohesive community like that, or just a, a local meetup about UFOs where you have a bunch of people with like-minded ideas invested in the same things who can talk freely with each other and care about the same stuff. And I think that's appealing to a lot of people too. Everybody, it's appealing to everybody. Absolutely. And I was living in the San Francisco Bay area at the time and I went, it was just at a local church, I think that hired out the hall there and um, the speaker was from the UK and they absolutely have members throughout uh, across the globe. So um, they're, they're quite a, a big organization, even having lost their leader or having a leader deny them, I guess. Well, it, the sun never sets in the Maitreya empire. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> that's what that's what the t-shirts say you mentioned community that's that's actually really important so like you know we've mm -hmm. been doing monster talk for about a decade now and and i think we started out and not that we were I mean, we were always very skeptical but i i think we always tried to be very uh empathetic to the fact that people believe all kinds of things and and any, you know, you might have peculiar beliefs about one area and have, you know, perfectly rational beliefs about other things. And it's fair to say, I think that rationalism isn't the only approach to the universe. So we try to go beyond just, is this true or is this not? And that sense of community is so important. And especially right now, I think people are always, you know, trying to find their place in the world. And it's it's hard to find a place that, for me, like is a, is a really rational, you know, perhaps overly skeptical person to find a place where I can like, you know, also embrace all these weird interests. So I, I've really enjoyed this online experience because I've been able to find a community of people who, yes, we don't necessarily believe in this stuff, but we also agree that it's, it's interesting, weird and fun to explore. And I think that's one of the cool yes. things your book does is look at all this in a, in a really um, thoughtful and, and interesting way that, that doesn't really just, it's not dismissive. Thanks. Yeah, that was that was very important to me because I think I mean, I think in my younger, more black and white years, I would have said that rationalism and a strictly scientific approach was the only way to look at the universe. But, you know, I'm, I'm older and more nuanced now. And I don't think that and I think there's a lot of a lot of valid ways and a lot of valid values that people get from looking at it different ways. And what I learned working on a UFO book is that things like this are, like you said, just they're fun to think about. It's a fun to go out and look for whether you can see something you can't identify in the sky. Um, and I also think it's good for thinking about like the, the limits of traditional science. Like there are plenty of things we don't know uh, right now and plenty of things we maybe can't know ever. And um, I think that science doesn't admit that as often as it should. True, true, yeah. I think from a skeptical position, we often talk about it, the importance of being able to say we don't know. Definitely. I say it every, every chance I get. You come from a science and astronomy background. How did, how did that impact your writing? And, and how did you, were you originally planning to be an astronomer? Yeah, so I've wanted to be an astronomer since I was really young, very obnoxiously young. And I was particularly interested in radio astronomy and the idea that you could use telescopes to pick up radiation that your eyes couldn't see outside of the visible light spectrum that was just coming down all the time. I thought that was really fascinating. So I went to school and studied astronomy and physics and uh, worked at a bunch of radio telescopes in Puerto Rico and West Virginia um, when I uh, during the summers when I was not in school. And um, at a certain point in there, I decided that doing the science wasn't for me. And I started to go 
down a writing path, but um, along the way I worked um, for a couple of years at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in uh, Green Bank, West Virginia, running kids science camps. So kids would come for a weekend or a week or two weeks and learn how to use a real radio telescope and discover real things like pulsars no one had found or um, mapping the hydrogen in our galaxy. And it was, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a fun way to share science with people who might go on to use it someday. And are you still following the UFO slash UAP field now that you've put so many of your ideas into writing? <laughs> you know, I thought I thought that I wouldn't. I thought when I finished the book that I would maybe walk away or maybe follow very casually. But I, uh, <laughs> I'm sure you and your listeners are familiar with the phenomenon of just being totally sucked down a wormhole. And I've been oh, yeah. unable to leave it behind. So I still follow all the same blogs, read the same subreddits listen to the same podcasts um yes. but i did write the book so now i'm mostly hoping that other people will go on and figure it all out since i did it's their turn now <laughs> what are you working on next what's your next big writing project um i'm kind of uh diving into the nuclear sector so kind of i guess the hmm. physics part of my background i've been really interested in scientists that kind of work jointly on fundamental research and then also on either simulating nuclear weapons or trying to get them taken apart and just kind of that whole overlap of of uh, people in that scientific and militaristic world. So I'm just kind of dipping my toe in there and I'm not sure where it'll go, but uh, hopefully somewhere interesting. Well, it'd be cool because it combines your uh, radio astronomy and your physical fitness with radioactive. Okay, that was really lame. Sorry. <laughs> Good try. (laughs) (laughs) It's like nice effort, golf clap, right? Okay. Do you have any follow-up questions you wanted to ask? About a million, but I know we're out of time, so let's finish. I just we're absolutely, I highly, highly recommend this book to our listeners, and and I want to thank you again for taking time to talk with us tonight. Yeah, sure. No, thank you guys for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. But we have one final question that we like to ask all of our guests, and that is, Sarah, what's your favorite monster? So I think that my favorite monster, who I think not everyone would call a monster, is uh, the alien Mac from Mac and Me, whose plot I do not remember (laughs) at all, but which I made my parents rent over and over again when I was very little. Um, And I thought about looking the plot up before I came on here, but then I didn't. So I don't actually remember anything about Mac other than his face. Are you aware of the the running joke on the Conan O'Brien show? When, when Paul Rudd comes to visit to promote sh- movies, he always says, I brought a clip, and it's always the same clip from Mac and Me. Oh, I did not know oh that. Oh, my God. That's it brilliant. is so f- there's a There's a YouTube that's, like, collected all of them into, like, this long montage of these. They're so funny. Oh, my God. They're so funny. Um, yeah, okay. I'll send you a link I to I know those. what I'm doing tonight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll put it in the show notes <laughs> yeah. for our listeners. But definitely, it will... You'll you'll be a broken person tomorrow. So, <laughs> in a good way. In a good way. So. Binge watching in her future. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much again for making time to talk to us. I, I again, I'll put a link to the book in the show notes. Um, there's also an audio version. It's fantastic. Our listeners will absolutely have to go out there and check out this book. Yes. Thank you all in advance. Monster dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. 
And I'm Karen Stoltzner. You just heard an interview with author Sarah Scholes about her superb book, They Are Already Here, UFO Culture and Why We See Saucers. A link to her book will be in the show notes. In our next episode, we'll be looking even further into the cosmos as we continue our space theme. Stay tuned. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thank you so much for listening. been a Monster House presentation.